Yesterday, April 6th, as we have been reminded today, marked the 161st anniversary of the reestablishment of our Lord's Church in these latter days. The history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is also a history of the dispensation of the fullness of times. A dispensation is the dispensing of blessings or afflictions by deity as appropriate. A dispensation is also defined as a period when God has revealed his mind and will to man. It means the opening of the heavens to man, the dispensing to them the word of God, the revealing to men the principles and ordinances of the gospel, the conferring of divine authority upon chosen ones by which they are empowered to act in the name and authority of God. The dispensation of the fullness of times is a dispensation which includes all others, both in heaven and on earth. It is the dispensation which will fulfill all of the decrees of a loving Heavenly Father for the salvation of all men and the redemption of the earth itself. An inspired prophet Joseph Smith wrote, It is necessary that a welding together of dispensations should take place from the days of Adam even to the present time. End of quote. The gospel, of course, is of great antiquity. In the heavenly kingdom, it was formed before the foundation of the earth. From the very first, the plan of man's progression and salvation was known. This period of time in which we live, the dispensation of the fullness of times, will see the culmination of all of God's work on the earth. For this reason, we are anxiously engaged in the Lord's work which includes the performance of certain ordinances for all who have lived and will live upon the earth. Just a few minutes' drive to the southeast of where we are, in one of the many beautiful canyons that grace these Wasatch Mountains, stands a huge granite mountain. From the road deep in the canyon floor, and most automobile passengers do not see, the large arched portals cut high in the side of the mountain. Few would realize that behind these portals are six large storage rooms cut deep into the solid granite and that in them lie the world's largest collection of genealogy records. These are not ordinary records, but records listing the births, marriages, and deaths of nearly two billion people who have lived on the earth. They are the product of over 50 years of tireless effort the world over by church representatives, by microfilm camera operators, and those who care for these records housed row upon row in microfilm cabinets deep in the mountains. The magnitude of this project to gather and preserve these records is awesome to behold. Why do you do this? asks some. Why does the Church commit millions of dollars and tens of thousands of hours to this immense 
an un but unusual project. Why have such great concern for those who have died? Our answer is simple yet profound. Because we love them. Because they are entitled to the same blessings that we enjoy. Because this is a major part of the heavenly plan for this, the dispensation of the fullness of times, for the blessing of all people. We gather these records to identify our ancestors. We identify our ancestors so that we may perform for them the saving ordinances of the gospel in holy temples dedicated to that purpose. It is our responsibility given to us by the Lord to help redeem all those of our Father's children who have lived and died without receiving the sacred ordinances of the gospel. Yet each has the opportunity to accept or reject the ordinances performed in their behalf. Several years ago, I was riding on a train from Edinburgh, Scotland, to Glasgow with a noted British lawyer. We had engaged him to present our claim of discrimination by the City Council of Glasgow. We were seeking to, a building permit, which had been repeatedly denied by the City Council uh, at the instigation of an opposing ministerial group as not needed inasmuch as there was an abundance of vacant or unused church buildings. We had been granted a hearing before the Secretary of State for Scotland, a member of the Prime Minister's Cabinet. As the early morning train sped towards Glasgow, I asked the distinguished counsel if he had any additional questions about our church. I was concerned about his limited understanding of our expansion, of why we were building modern church buildings, and why we had hundreds of missionaries in Great Britain. He assured me that he was quite comfortable in representing us and presenting our case, that to him appeared to have merit. As we discussed other aspects of our growing presence in Great Britain, he said, I hear, but it couldn't be true, that you baptize for dead people. I said, yes, it is true. Not only true that we do it today, but the eternal principle of vicarious service of baptism for the dead was taught during our Savior's earthly ministry. I explained that all of God's worthy children of all ages can become heirs of salvation to His kingdom. I briefly remind the lawyer of Jesus teaching Nicodemus that except a man be born, born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said unto him, How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. I also made reference to the early apostles' teachings regarding Christ's resurrection and the resurrection of all, and including Paul's great statement, Else what, uh, what shall they do which are baptized for the dead if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? The engaged lawyer seemed comfortable. He presented our case effectively. 
We won our building permit. The chapel now stands in Glasgow, Scotland. The Prophet Joseph Smith declared, Let me assure you that these are principles in relation to the dead and the living that cannot be lightly passed over as pertaining to our salvation, for their salvation is necessary and essential to our salvation. They without us cannot be made perfect, neither can we without our dead be made perfect. End of quote. But how, you might say, even with the millions of rolls of microfilm at my fingertips, and even with the family history library in Salt Lake City and the hundreds of family history centers located in stake centers and ward meeting houses scattered across the earth, how can I unlock the, uh, the microfilms, cabinets that are hidden away in, the, in those mountains and, uh, and identify my ancestors? Genealogy has long been associated with tedium, painstaking research, and musty books, but no more. Now we have available a modern miracle called FamilySearch, and FamilySearch is a powerful, innovative computer system. In response to your typing in a name of your ancestors at, the, at a keyboard, FamilySearch, in just moments, races through millions of names and finds any that match what you typed. It knows how to match names that are spelled differently but sound the same. It can guide you from one small fragment of sketchy information to full screens of information, dates and places of birth, marriage and deaths, and names of parents, children, and spouses. To store all of this information, the family search uses these little compact disks that you see in the record stores. Each disk can store as many as five million names. FamilySearch includes many different kinds of records, publicly available government records from the military and other agencies, and the family as well as the Family History Library's own catalog, an index to uh, completed family or, or temple ordinances, and family pedigrees contributed from people the world over. Each of these files are a valuable contribution to our efforts to fulfilling our mandate. One of the most promising and helpful features of FamilySearch is Ancestral File. It has made the world much smaller because it has put total strangers with common ancestry in touch with each other. Suddenly, Church members and non-members alike are finding new cousins and thousands of deceased ancestors at the press of a computer key. By using Ancestral File at the Family History Library in Salt Lake or one of the local libraries scattered across the country, you are able to view on a computer screen the pedigrees and family group records of more than 7 million people. And the file is continually growing as you and your friends contribute your own data to the file. Many of those listed are your relatives and mine. You can also see on the computer screen the names and addresses of each person who submitted the information 
thereby enabling you to make contact and exchange information and verify the facts. Some of you may be intimidated, intimidated or have a fear of using computers. This need not be. Ellie is 12. She was planning to go to the Family History Library with her beehive class. She was a little apprehensive, not having been before. But her father told her not to worry. All she needed to do to get started was to use a computer, but Ellie smiled. And she was sure that her father was joking, and she replied, Oh, I could never do that. I couldn't even work the computer. The day arrived for her, a visit, her visit to the library. Ellie and her friend, Cammy decided to give the computer a try. They quickly learned that if they would read and follow the instructions on the screen, they would do just fine. It was, as ex it was an excited Ellie who returned home that evening. So you found some names you recognized, her father asked. Oh, yes. At first, I looked for Grandpa's name, and I found it. Then I looked for Uncle Steve, and he was there. And then I looked for me, and I was there. I found me. I was right there on the screen. And all of the other family names filled up the whole screen. When can we go again, she said. A non-member in Wisconsin who, with other family members, has been stymied by lack of information on her great-grandfather, she decided to try the ancestral file and, after some searching, discovered her great-grandfather that she had been looking for for many years. Shortly, she had transferred to her disk several thousand additional names and over 1,300 marriages on this previously dead-end line. She, too, is entering thousands of additional names onto the other names to contribute to this ancestral file. And a member down in Georgia was able to extend his pedigree back to 1486 using the ancestral file and now has submitted hundreds of names for temple work. Ancestral file will continue to increase in value as members and non-members contribute their family history research in a cooperative effort to identify and link the family of man. It catalogs extended family relationship as sort of an electronic book of remembrance, full of pedigree charts and family group history, not only for your family, but also the families of tens of thousands of others indi indicating where your family line links with countless others. Simple instructions on how you contribute your accumulated information to ancestral file is now available at the Family History Library in Salt Lake and at the other centers in various snake centers and ward meeting houses in the United States and Canada, and shortly it will be worldwide. Ask your ward family consult, history consultant where the nearest center is to you. You can find out and contribute your genealogical data and then make that information available to the entire world. We know that God, our Father, is our greatest teacher, and nothing that we might read or hear should quicken our attention like His instructions and counsel. 
These marvelous new technological developments have been revealed in this dispensation in greater fullness and greater plainness than ever before in the history of the world as far as we know, so that His purposes might be speedily brought to pass. The Church in establishing family history centers is now bringing those marvelous developments directly to you. From Buckeye, Arizona to Birmingham, Alabama, and from Sandpoint, Idaho to Albany, New York, and from Calgary, Canada to Montreal, Canada, and soon from Sydney, Australia to London, England, the Saints will be able to go to a Church meeting house near their homes and unlock the secrets of their ancestry. One of the most thrilling results of being involved in family research and genealogical research is becoming intimately acquainted with our ancestors, their challenges and achievements, and then showing our gratitude by performing for them the ordinances that will allow them the greatest to obtain the greatest of all the gifts, the gift of eternal life. James E. Talmage wrote, Compliance with the ordinance of baptism has been shown to be essential to salvation, and this condition applies to all mankind. Nowhere in Scripture is a distinction made in this regard between the living and the dead. All are children of the same Father, all to be judged and rewarded by punishment or by the same unerring justice with the same mercy for all the inhabitants of the earth, past, present, and future. This, uh, he is Lord alike of all, the living and the dead. End of quote. Behold, the great day of the Lord is at hand. Let us, therefore, as a Church and a people, and as Latter-day Saints, offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness, and let us present in His holy temple a book containing the records of our dead, which shall be worthy of all acceptance. This I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Having all been richly nourished by this general conference, it is fitting to focus prescriptively on the few in the Church who remain spiritually undernourished, including those who have grown weary and fainted in their minds. A few of these few have had their faith scorched, such as by the circumstances of wrenching or unrelieved sickness, grinding economic pressures, loss of a loved one, or deep disappointment with a spouse or friend. Adversity can increase faith or, instead, can cause the troubling roots of bitterness to spring up. A few have been overcome by the preoccupying cares of the world, those wearying surface things of life. Emerson's plea is surely appropriate. Give me truths for I am weary of the surfaces. A few are fatigued by unconfessed sins. A few tire from milling about haltingly in the valley of decision. 
a few foolishly focusing on something other than Jesus, the sure and true foundation, are drained by disappointment. Whatever the preceding causes, any fainting in our minds brings a loss of spiritual consciousness, and with this the inclination to charge God foolishly. The urgings for us not to weary in well-doing contain prescriptions needed to avoid such weariness. We are to work steadily, but realistically only expect to reap in due season. We are to serve while being meek and lowly, avoiding thereby the wearying burdens of self-pity and hypocrisy. We are to pray always so that we will not faint, so that our performance will actually be for the welfare of our souls, which is so much more than just going through the motions. Even when righteously chastised or rebuked, we need not faint, for in the correcting is renewing love. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. One's life, therefore, cannot be both faith-filled and stress-free. President Wilfred Woodruff counseled us all about the mercy that is inherent in some adversity. The chastisements we have had from time to time, he said, have been for our good and are essential to learn wisdom and carry us through the school of experience we never could have passed through without. Therefore, how can you and I really expect to glide naively through life as if to say, Lord, give me experience, but not grief, not sorrow, not pain, not opposition, not betrayal, and certainly not to be forsaken. Keep from me, Lord, all those experiences which made Thee what Thou art. Then. Let me come and dwell with thee and fully share thy joy. Serving, studying, praying, and worshiping are four fundamentals in perfecting that which is lacking in our faith. If we cease nurturing our faith in any of these four specific ways, we are vulnerable. Failure to study, for instance, is to be intellectually and spiritually malnourished. Inspired words do matter. For when a man works by faith, he works by words. In a hardening world, the Lord can pierce our consciousness by using the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. However, hearing must be mixed with faith and with Christian service, as we have heard again and again in this conference. For how knoweth a man the master whom he has not served and who is a stranger unto him? and is far from the thoughts and intents of his heart. A lack of deep personal prayer and deep genuine worship also erodes our faith, and we may faint in the day of trouble. Much of any weariness is attributable to carrying the heavy natural man. Unlike others we might carry, the natural man is heavy, and he is not our brother. So much depends upon our individual faith. The apostles pled, Lord, increase our faith. No wonder, brothers and sisters, because we are to walk by faith, 
not by sight. Life is so designed that we are to overcome by faith, not by intellectual acuity or wealth or political prowess. Nevertheless, seekers after the rewards of faith are often disappointed when they are told to study, serve, pray, and worship. As with leprous Naaman, they apparently expect some great thing which requires no obedience to counsel. Faith brings with it the expanding evidence of things not seen. Some mortals dismiss this real spiritual evidence because the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit, for they are foolishness unto him, because they are spiritually discerned. But this provincialism on the part of others should not deprive the rest of us of energizing evidence. Building faith is often preceded by shaping circumstances, benefiting those who are in a preparation to hear the word. These beginnings require at least a desire to believe, and then comes the exercising of a particle of faith. As we give place and plant the seed of faith, it grows discernibly. We are invigorated as it enlightens and swells. We become our own internal auditors, confirming this increase in our faith. It is better to so nourish our faith in what seems to be an ordinary process than to experience extraordinary things only to stumble later over life's ordinary challenges. However, in this process of personal experimentation and verification, the several sacred steps cannot be skipped over, for you receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. Moreover, acquiring faith is not a one-time thing. But if you neglect the tree and take no thought for its nourishment, behold, it will not get any root. And when the heat of the sun cometh and scorcheth it, because it hath no root, it withers away. Our neglect, brothers and sisters, takes so many forms. Similarly, the withering heat of the sun is felt in so many ways. Experience by experience, faith can yield to knowledge in that thing, meaning the particularized verifications of gospel truths. It was so with the brother of Jared. He had faith no longer, for he knew. Brigham Young assured that every principle God has revealed carries its own convictions of its truth to the human mind. Jesus clearly declared that if any man will do his will, he shall know. However, Jesus described the steady process as being one of line upon line, precept upon precept. But we're all at different points in this process, aren't we? of desiring, experimenting, verifying, and knowing. Hence, to some it is given to know, and to others it is given to believe on their words. While faith is not a perfect knowledge, it brings a deep trust in God whose knowledge is perfect. Otherwise, one small database of personal experience permits so few useful generalizations. But by searching the Holy Scriptures, 
we access a vast divine data bank, a reservoir of remembrance. In this way, the scriptures can, as the Book of Mormon says, enlarge the memory. Fully formed faith has several distinct facets. Faith in God and in the Lord Jesus Christ includes not only faith in their existence, but also in their redemptive capacities. The Lord has assured us, I will show unto the children of men that I am able to do mine own work. Is he ever able? Indeed, in him all things hold together. Nevertheless, some doubt that God's announced purposes will actually triumph. Faith also includes trust in God's timing, for he has said all things must come to pass in their time. Ironically, some who acknowledge God are tried by his timing, globally and personally. Faith likewise includes faith in God's developmental purposes. For the Lord seeth fit to chasten his people, yea, he trieth their patience and their faith. Still, some of us have trouble when God's tutoring is applied to us. We plead for exemption more than we do for sanctification, don't we, brothers and sisters? A reassuring promise is given us in this journey. And any man that shall go and preach this gospel of the kingdom and fail not to continue faithful in all things shall not be weary in mind neither darkened. But what if, from time to time, we appear to be doing all four of these essential things—serving, studying, praying, and worshiping—and still seem to obtain a lesser measure of the promised blessings? First, check the equipment. All four components are needed, and one may be missing or malfunctioning. Second go back to a very basic question. Does one really have an inner desire to believe? Frankly, some find discipleship constraining and the world appealing, and these individuals are merely going through the motions without real intent. Third, do we naively expect Christ to come to us instead of our going to him? Truly. He waits all the day long with open arms to receive the repentant. There are no office hours, but it is we who must arise and go to him. Blessed are the meek, for they shall not be easily offended, which is especially important since my people must be tried in all things. And he that will not bear chastisement is not worthy of my kingdom. Genuine faith makes increasing allowance for these individual tutorials. In view of these tutorials, God cannot, brothers and sisters, respond affirmatively to all of our petitions with an unbroken chain of yeses. This would assume that all of our petitions are for that which is right and are spiritually expedient. No petitioner is so wise. Paul even acknowledged that we sometimes know not what we should pray for as we ought. 
For example, in process of time, our personal inconsistencies may be made inconveniently clear. How else shall we see what we lack? Spiritual refinement is not only to make the gross more pure, but to further refine the already fine. Hence, said Peter, we should not think a fiery trial to be some strange thing. Real faith, however, is required to endure this necessary but painful developmental process. As things unfold, sometimes in full view, let us be merciful with each other. We certainly do not criticize hospital patients amid intensive care for looking pale and preoccupied. Why then those recovering from surgery on their souls? No need for us to stare. Those stitches will finally come out. And in this hospital, too, it is important for everyone to remember that the hospital chart is not the patient. Extending our mercy to someone need not wait upon our full understanding of their challenges. Empathy may not be reciprocated, but empathy is never wasted. When you and I make unwise decisions, if we have frail faith, we not only demand to be rescued, but we want to be rescued privately, painlessly, quickly, or at least to be beaten only with a few stripes. Brothers and sisters, how can we really feel forgiven until we first feel responsible? How can we learn from our own experiences unless these lessons are owned up to? In the trial of faith, we may sometimes feel God has deserted us. The reality is that our behavior has isolated us from Him. It is when we first feel the consequences of our mistakes and are just turning away from these, but have not yet turned fully to God, that we may have these feelings of being forsaken. No part of walking by faith is more difficult than walking the road of repentance. However, with faith unto repentance, we can push the roadblock of pride away and beg God for mercy. One simply surrenders worrying only about what God thinks, not about what they think. Growing out of our faith in the Lord is our sustaining of His anointed leaders, as we have done at this April conference. Faithful Church members have what Peter called an unfeigned love of the brethren. Collectively, but not perfectly, those sustained do the work to which God has called them. As with Joseph Smith, so it is for his succeeding brethren. The operative promise persists, namely, the people of the Church will never be turned away by the testimony of traitors. The faithful know something about divine determination. They know that the Lord's purposes will finally triumph, for there is nothing that the Lord thy God shall take in his heart to do but what He will do it. All that divine determination and divine love I gladly and publicly testify in the holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.
Last Sunday, Latter-day Saints joined together with the entire Christian world in remembering and celebrating Easter. We were worshiping our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and honoring His resurrection. We were also thanking God, as we have done today on this special day of prayer, for the liberation of Kuwait and the hope of lasting peace in the Persian Gulf area with the returning of troops to their homelands. When Christ was born to this world, angels proclaimed peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Yet in the two thousand years since that proclamation there has been little peace in the world. Even with the successful cessation of major hostilities in the Gulf, there still remains an uneasy peace between some nations and great unrest within other nations. Just as Christ's Atonement has saved us from both physical and spiritual death, the peace of which the Savior of mankind spoke is also both physical and spiritual. Today I'd like to speak to, about this spiritual peace offered by Christ in the Sermon on the Mount when He gave us the beatitude, the beautiful beatitude about peace and peacemakers. The entire sermon is a blueprint for us to use in our personal path towards perfection, as well as a pattern of the many attributes and qualities we must develop in our eternal quest to approach the perfection and peace Jesus personifies. I like to think of when the sermon was first taught. In my mind's eye I see a scene of peaceful beauty. I envision an afternoon in early April. The sky is softening toward dusk with not even a breeze. White, wispy, cirrus clouds stand almost motionless in the clear blue sky, and below on the coast of the Sea of Galilee soft waves lap against the moored fishing boats. A great crowd assembles on the side of the hill. Eager listeners sit on the grass or stand amidst the rocks and early spring flowers. All are hushed and thoughtful as every face is lifted up, every eye looking towards the Lord, and every ear listening as the Savior tells them what they need to do in order to have peace in their lives. Tenderly, Christ speaks, Blessed are the peacemakers. Another Bible translator quotes the Savior, saying, Happy are those who make peace. Either way, we focus on the strong verb make, as in make peace or peacemaker. To follow Christ and bring forth the blessings of heaven, we must actively make peace in the world, in the community, in the neighborhood, and above all, in the home we live in. In the meridian of time, many expected Christ to take a political stand against Roman rule and offer peace to the oppressed people. Christ did indeed offer peace, but it was not external or political. Rather, the peace Christ taught was internal and personal. I would like to share an incident which took place during the Vietnam War. There were some who were convinced that the United States was engaged in a noble and justifiable war. However, public opinion was changing, and there was opposition which argued that the U.S. should pull out of Vietnam. President Harold B. Lee was the president of the Church at the time. While at an area conference in another country, he was interviewed by reporters from the International News Services. 
One reporter asked President Lee, What is your church's position on the Vietnam War? Some recognized the question as a trap, one which could not be answered without a very real risk of being misunderstood or misinterpreted. If the prophet answered, We are against the war, the international media could state, How strange! A religious leader who is against the position of the country he is obliged to sustain in his own church's articles of faith? On the other hand, if President Lee answered, We are in favor of the war, the media could question, How strange! A religious leader in favor of war? Either way, the answer could result in serious problems regarding public opinion, both inside and outside the Church. President Lee, with great inspiration and wisdom, answered as would a man who knows the Savior, quote, We together with the whole Christian world abhor war. But the Savior said, In me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation. And then the prophet quoted that other comforting scripture from John, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth give I unto you. Presently then explained, The Savior was not talking about the peace that can be achieved between nations by military force or by negotiation in the halls of parliaments. Rather, he was speaking of the peace we can each have in our own lives when we live the commandments and come unto Christ with broken hearts and contrite spirits." A tender sweet story about receiving peace from the scriptures appeared in the January 1991 ensign submitted by Sister Carol Siegmiller. Using a few excerpts, I quote from her article. Dad decided that our family should begin an intensive study of the scriptures to help my brother Bruce prepare for his mission. Dad's goal was to read the entire Book of Mormon before Bruce left, tape recording our voices as we went along. We would take turns reading a chapter each. The family finished the Book of Mormon a few months later, so Dad decided we should read and record the four Gospels from the New Testament. I complained this time, telling Dad that I didn't see the point. We could buy audio tapes of professionals reading the scriptures, and they sounded a lot better than we did. Dad persisted. Carol, one day these tapes will be a great blessing to us. I began to enjoy these times together with the family. I especially liked to hear Dad share his personal insights about a passage. Soon I began to sense the peace that comes through studying the scriptures. We finished reading the four Gospels shortly before Bruce left for the mission, or for the missionary training center. After Bruce left, I noticed how comforting the tapes were to Dad. He often listened to them, partly just to hear Bruce's voice, I thought, since they'd been very close. Sometimes at night, Dad would fall asleep listening, and I'd smile to myself as I heard the familiar click, click, click of the recorder that had run to tape's end. When Bruce had been gone for more than a year, Dad died quietly of a heart attack. All of our family members gathered except Bruce, who had determined to finish his mission. That evening, after the funeral, I was feeling low. I went upstairs to Dad's room and dejectedly sat down at his desk. I noticed his well-used tape recorder lying nearby. Inside was one of our tapes of the New Testament, 
which Dad must have listened to the very night before he died. I began rewinding the tape, stopping it at random, hoping to find solace in hearing the gentle resonance of Dad's voice. I sat upright as my father spoke from the tape, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. I listened to that passage over and over. The words reached out and wrapped a comforting arm around me. Peace did come to us that night. And since then, I have tasted the sweet peace of the New Testament time and time again. To me, that is its greatest message. One of the world-famous prayers of St. Francis of Assisi suggests that we can be instruments in the hands of the Savior for bringing personal peace to others. This is the essence of the true maker of peace. The prayer reads, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. To be a maker of peace, it helps if we understand what brings peace. Paul says that it's the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Our closeness to the Lord will in great measure determine the peace and comfort and renewed strength that we feel as we invite the Spirit into our lives. As I was preparing for this occasion, a brother, a brother of the Church telephoned. His priesthood leader had requested earlier that I accept his call. Desperately, he pleaded with me, We need to see someone. We just have to find some peace in our lives. There are probably as many different sources of personal strife and lack of peace as there are people. The roots might be in one's own life or in the life of a loved one. The causes can be sin, failure to live the commandments of God, selfishness, pride, lack of love, lack of commitment, lack of willingness to make sacrifices for others, or even just being an innocent victim. No matter what the reason, the solution to achieve peace is always the same. Turn to Christ. Follow his example. His command to the storm-tossed sea, peace be still, can also apply to his calming influence in our lives as we experience the buffetings of life's storms. Personal peace and our level of spirituality will increase as we focus on studying and thinking about Christ every day, about loving and thanking Christ more each day for His atoning sacrifice, by daily striving to serve Christ better through becoming more involved in missionary service, by making a greater effort to find His lost sheep, His lost coins, His lost prodigals, and helping them return to the fold, and by making a more concerted effort to be in the temple more frequently, and by researching more diligently our family history. Is there any peace greater than that of the faithful missionary, the caring shepherd, the dedicated temple patron and worker? In spite of all the problems in the world today, peace can come to the hearts of each of us as we 
follow the Savior. Christ is the way to peace, the truth of peace, the life of peace, the source of peace. Look forward with steadfastness unto Christ. Talk of Christ, rejoice in Christ, preach of Christ, live like Christ would have us live, and worship Him and our Heavenly Father with all your heart, might, mind, and strength. May peace be with you this day and always. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Many years ago, while my children were very young, the nighttime bottles and the daytime diapers seemed as endless as the frozen ground outside our military apartment. When I feel sorry for myself, it helps me to do something for someone else. That winter, my need was great, so I needed a grand solution. I decided to make a sport coat for my husband. Having no experience in tailoring, I began by finding the best pattern and materials on the market. With great enthusiasm, I took out the pattern guide. My heart nearly failed me. There were pages of instructions, 138 steps as I remember. It was beyond my ability. The next few days I took that pattern everywhere I went. I decided to work on no more than two steps per day so I wouldn't get discouraged. When two steps were completed, I would read the directions for the next day's task. Occasionally I got overanxious and had to unpick, but fortunately mistakes in good materials don't remain if they are carefully removed. A few months later, I had created a masterpiece. The pattern had made the miracle possible. Patterns had become very important to me. As my awareness of patterns has continued, I have become very appreciative of the Lord's patterns. Patterns for His handiwork are detailed in the scriptures. They regard the building of a tabernacle, an ark, an altar, and temples. The materials are important. The purpose is grand. Then comes that most important pattern of righteousness set by Jesus Christ, a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on Him to life everlasting. In every imaginable setting from ancient times to modern days, we see this pattern repeated. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, repentance, baptism, the gift of the Holy Ghost. Patterns are meant to be repeated. A pattern of righteousness is worthy of duplication. Yet there are those who suppose that our righteousness involves climbing some imaginary vertical ladder. We then think we hasten our progress by trying to get above or ahead of others. I believe this is pride. In Alma, we are told, the preacher was no better than the hearer, neither was the teacher any better than the learner, and thus they were all equal, and they did all labor, every man according to his strength. End of quote. Righteousness is reproduced horizontally, not vertically. When we establish a pattern of righteousness in our lives, we commit to our Heavenly Father to do all in our power to help others reproduce this pattern in their lives. This can happen over and over until, as it says in Isaiah, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. Heavenly Father tells us in the Doctrine and Covenants, 
I will give unto you a pattern in all things that ye may not be deceived. To avoid deception, we should watch for patterns of righteousness in our lives. I would like to mention three—prayer, scripture study, and service to others. When we have learned the importance of prayer, this habit of daily prayer can be reproduced in the lives of others by teaching and good example. My youngest daughter said that prayer became more meaningful to her as she watched her older sister kneel by the bed at night when she thought others were asleep. As a student at BYU, I remember kneeling in prayer with eight roommates each morning at 6.30 and then having breakfast together. Years later, if we missed having prayer with our children, I was sure my old roommates would be concerned. What a great pattern they set for me. Is that happening in homes and apartments today? A few months ago, I was kneeling in prayer with a young family in Albuquerque. I had a wonderful warm feeling as I opened my eyes and looked around that circle. It was as if I imagined families in homes throughout the world having that same experience. Hopefully, if the pattern of prayer is established in our homes, individual family members will help reproduce that pattern for others, as my roommates did for me. Scripture study keeps us increasing our understanding of the pattern of righteousness. As we live the words of God, we are told, He will give unto the faithful line upon line, precept upon precept. I am encouraged by the examples of scripture reading I see. I have a daughter who likes to warm her feet before going to bed at night. I love to see her sitting on the bathroom counter with her feet in a sink of warm water as she reads her scriptures. <laughs> My two grandsons, ages two and four, repeat with satisfaction the stickers they receive on their progress charts as they say their prayers and hear scripture stories each day. These fundamental patterns will always need to be taught to our children if righteousness is to continue. Giving loving service is another beautiful pattern of righteousness often learned in our homes. The scriptures teach of the importance of service, and leaders testify of its importance. Harold Glenn Clark, the first president of the Provo Temple, wrote a story for his grandchildren called Good for One Pass into Heaven. Brother Clark wrote, I was thinking what one thing I had ever done that might please the Lord most—deacons, quorum president, bishop, patriarch, temple president. Then it came to me what it might be. It was when I was sixteen years old. My mother, who often took in the unfortunate, had the care of two grandpas at one time. Someone said to her in jest, Why don't you put up a sign, Grandpa's Wanted? But it wasn't funny because I was assigned to take care of one grandpa who had to be bathed, dressed, and undressed and helped to the table to eat. Now I was a fun-loving 16-year-old, and here I was too many times nursing grandpa while a good game of basketball was going on outside. Once when my pals were calling me, I was inside doing the tedious chore of taking off his wet pajamas. I was impatient and upset. Then I felt Grandpa's trembling hand on mine, and I turned and met his tearful countenance and heard him say, God bless you, my boy. You will never regret doing this for me. 
I was so sorry I had been resentful. To this day I have a warm glow about this little service I performed for a quite helpless grandpa. I suppose doing something for someone else which they cannot do for themselves brings you close to God because that's what he and his son are doing for us. End of quote. Our young people need role models as they establish a pattern of righteousness in their lives. As I thought about my commitment to the youth of the Church, words of Boyd K. Packer had added meaning. Elder Packer has spoken of the warnings of Alma and Helaman as they told of the Church in their day. Quoting Elder Packer, They warned about fast growth, the desire to be accepted by the world, to be popular, and particularly they warned about prosperity. Each time those conditions existed in combination, the Church drifted off course. End of quote. Again, I was thinking about the youth of the Church. Consider the transition of a young person beginning at the age of 12 until the 18th year. The conditions spoken of in the Book of Mormon are almost always present in the lives of young people. A period of fast growth, a desire to be liked by others, to be popular, and often prosperity. A pattern of personal righteousness, which includes prayer, scripture study, and service, is the answer to avoiding the dangers spoken of in the Book of Mormon. Nephi knew this when he asked the Lord, O Lord, wilt thou encircle me around in the robe of thy righteousness? When I looked for a definition of pattern, I found it had a Latin origin derived from pater or father, one who served as a model or pattern to be emulated. Our Savior Jesus Christ set the pattern and asked us to follow him. Nephi asks, Can we follow Jesus save we shall be willing to keep the commandments of the Father? I am grateful to men and women and people of all ages whose lives help us see this pattern of righteousness. I am thankful for a living prophet. A few days after being called as a counselor to the Young Women General Presidency, the First Presidency of the Church approached my chair to set me apart and give me a blessing. I realized the prophet of God was about to lay his hands upon my head, and I was in awe. Following that blessing, as I turned to face the prophet, I was quite unprepared for the magnificence of the spirit I felt. I bear testimony that Ezra Taft Benson is a prophet of God and that Jesus Christ is our Savior. He has given us a pattern of righteousness that, when followed, will lead us back to our Heavenly Father. I bear this witness in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. There is a quality that can be seen in the lives of most Latter-day Saints and good men and women everywhere. It is demonstrated not only in their actions, but also seems to be a part of their nature. It is a blend of charity, forgiveness, and respect. And it takes into account the realization that God stands at the helm and we are all His children. As a result of this, we have certain obligations to one another. Wherefore, the Lord God hath given a commandment that all men should have charity 
which charity is love? And the scriptures also teach us, And ye shall also forgive one another your trespasses. This quality can be a part of a person's life without compromising principle or commitment to truth. Not long ago, Father Paul Showalter of Nauvoo shared with us an interesting insight on the Prophet Joseph Smith that came from the early Catholic history of that area. When the Saints began to settle in Nauvoo and surrounding areas, a French Catholic priest by the name of Father John Olliman, who lived in neighboring McDonough County, needed transportation to visit a sick parishioner. Joseph provided him with a ferry in order to cross the river and a carriage to his destination. As an expression of respect, Joseph later commented, The priests attend to their people faithfully and mind their own business, whereas others continually bother the Latter-day Saints." This quality of respect for others, no matter what their belief or religious affiliation, seemed to be a part of the life of the Prophet Joseph. He stood for truth and the restored gospel to his dying day, and he had no patience for those who were deliberately wicked or who tried to exercise unrighteous dominion over the Latter-day Saints, or for that matter, anyone else. Still, he showed a respect and brotherly concern for others, no matter what their beliefs or their backgrounds, which in many ways was remarkable when one considers the persecution that both he and the early Saints underwent. He said at one time that he was in possession of the quality of love, And we also read that if he could get the ear of his enemies, he was usually able to win them over. In his dealings with members and non-members, he was committed to a principle which can be found in the 121st section of the Doctrine and Covenants. No power or influence can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood only by persuasion, by long-suffering, by gentleness, by meekness, and by love unfeigned, by kindness and pure knowledge, which shall greatly enlarge the soul without hypocrisy and without guile. And let thy bowels also be full of charity toward all men and to the household of faith." Joseph declared the doctrine of the Restoration with the greatest of power and force, and never once did he back away from an opportunity to proclaim the truth of this work. He was a forerunner of literally legions of missionaries who have gone throughout the world to proclaim the same truths. Nevertheless, he also said, I never feel to force my doctrine upon any person. I rejoice to see prejudice give way to truth and the traditions of men dispersed by the pure principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ." In the closing days of his life, when Nauvoo was besieged with mobs and challenges both from within and without, he and Hiram still took the time to write to a Mr. Tewksbury in Boston who had become disaffiliated with the Church inviting him to be restored once again to fellowship. The letter says in part, 
feeling an ardent desire for the salvation of the souls of man, we would, in the sincerity of men of God, advise you to be rebaptized by Elder Nickerson, one of the servants of God, that you may again receive the sweet influence of the Holy Ghost and enjoy the fellowship of the saints." Unquote. This same spirit can be found in the First Presidency Letter of 1985, which said in part, We are aware of some who are inactive, of others who have been critical and are prone to find fault, of those who have been disfellowshipped or excommunicated because of serious transgression. To all such, we reach out in love. We are anxious to forgive in the spirit of him who said, I, the Lord, will forgive whom I will forgive, but of you it is required to forgive all men. This letter is referred to as the invitation to come back. Today we live in times of conflict, dissent, differences of opinion, charges, countercharges, disagreements. There is need for us, perhaps more than ever before, to reach within ourselves and allow the qualities of mutual respect, mingled with charity and forgiveness, to influence our actions with one another. To be able to disagree without becoming disagreeable, to lower our voices and build on common ground with the realization that once the storm has passed, we will still have to live with one another. While living in the East some years ago, I read of an experience that took place on the floor of the United States Senate. As I recall, a debate was taking place. The leader of the debate on one, in one party was Senator Hubert Humphrey of Minnesota. The floor leader for the other party was Senator Margaret Chase Smith of Maine. As time went on, it was clear that Senator Humphrey's party would win. On the morning of the vote, Senator Humphrey went out to his garden and cut some red roses. When Margaret Chase Smith arrived at her desk on the Senate floor that morning, there was the bouquet of roses. This, of course, did not change Senator Smith's mind concerning the issues, but it was a gesture of respect and of appreciation. In our dealings with one another, no matter what our position might be, we need more roses. And after Brother Faust talked this morning, I suppose roses without thorns. I was raised in a community in the western valleys of Utah. The town, Twila, was settled by pioneers when precious ore deposits were discovered in the nearby mountains. People came in from southern and eastern Europe who had a difficult culture and different religious preferences. They came to work in the mines and at the smelters. They settled just east of town and called their community Newtown. From almost the beginning, there was division and suspicion and misunderstanding between the new residents who brought with them their old country customs and the people of the established community who were mostly of pioneer stock. The two groups seldom mixed. One year, the high school hired a football coach fresh out of Utah State by the name of Sterling Harris. 
Coach Harris, as he came to be known, was outgoing and just a little irreverent. He went throughout the old town and the new town and made sure he got all the boys in school and then out for football. He had a nickname for everyone, and after a while it became a sort of status symbol to carry a Sterling Harris nickname. It wasn't long after that before he had the gowns and the White Houses lined up next to the Savages and the Stepics and the Orms and the Milinkoviches running from the same backfield. He was tough but impartial, and he had about him a presence that made people feel important and want to do their best. The team came together, and Coach Harris even took them to more than one state championship. But what was more important, in bringing the team together, he brought together the whole community. Walls were broken down. People from diverse cultures learned they could build on mutual respect and appreciation. Sterling Harris had become a bridge. Sterling Harris still lives in Twilla. He's 91 years of age. He went on to accomplish many things in his life, including superintendent of schools and as a leader in the Church. But none was more important than when he helped, when he helped the community to unite itself and to establish the principle of respect for others of different backgrounds and cultures. In the cities of this world, in the towns, in the neighborhoods, in the homes, we need more Sterling Harrises from every walk of life. Robert Frost once wrote, before I build a wall, I'd ask to know what I was walling in or walling out, and to whom I was like to give offense. Something there is that doesn't love a wall. People will always have opposing views, and I suppose there will always be conflict and even misunderstanding. But the principle of mutual respect mixed with charity and forgiveness can lay the foundation for the resolving of differences and the solving of problems. Was it not the Savior speaking of the first and great commandment who said that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, might, mind, and strength, and that the second is likened to it, that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves? The quality of mutual respect is a great quality. It can be found in the hearts of great people. And in this sense, we all should be great people. It does not have to compromise truth or principle, but it can create brotherhood and sisterhood and the resolution of many problems. May the Lord bless us that we may look upon one another in that spirit. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> During this past Christmas season, I had the privilege of participating in the Washington, D.C. Visitor Center Christmas Lighting Celebration. When I turned on the 200,000 lights, they seemed to dance and sparkle in the trees with the majestic temple glowing in the background. 
That night, outside of their Soviet community, for the first time, 35 children from the Soviet Embassy School performed dances and songs of their homeland beautifully. Following their program, boys and girls who were members of the Church performed for an appreciative audience that included embassy officials from 22 nations. The children who were members of the Church were sitting on risers that had been placed directly in front of the Christus statue that stands as the focal point of the visitor center's lobby. The Soviet children were sitting with their teachers and parents, apart from our youngsters. When I stood to speak, these beautiful young people, with their vibrant countenances, captured my attention. I asked the Soviet boys and girls to come and sit with our youth. As they did, it was a beautiful sight, an appropriate way to begin Christmas, the Christmas season. Sweet, pure children from two powerful nations showed an instant love for one another as they were seated at the feet of the Christus. I said to the audience that perhaps the world's troubles could be solved if we could turn over the leadership of nations to the children for a few days. Through love, they would find solutions to the misunderstandings, the mistrust, and the misconduct of the adults of the world. I had the clear impression that night that if all men and women could love Jesus Christ as these lovely children do, many world problems could be saved. Sooner, perhaps, than we realize, the fate of nations will be in the hands of today's children. An anonymous author penned it this way, I saw tomorrow passing on little children's feet, and on their forms and faces her prophecies complete. And then I saw tomorrow look at me through little children's eyes, and I thought how carefully I must teach if I am wise. My brothers and sisters, if we are concerned about our tomorrows, we will teach our children wisely and carefully, for in them lie our tomorrows. Have you seen the future when you gazed through the hospital nursery window and saw the bassinet wheeled into your view? You see that beautiful newborn infant for the first time? A new spirit comes into your life as a son or a daughter, grandchild or child of a friend, and you know that your life will never be quite the same again. How often have you had to blink back the tears as you stood in awe and contemplated the miracle of a new life? This newly arrived spirit has come in sweet innocence from the presence of God. Every human being is a spirit child of God and lived with Heavenly Father before coming to the earth. He entrusts his spirit children to earthly parents who provide a mortal body for them through the miracle of physical birth and gives to parents the sacred opportunity and responsibility to love, protect, teach, and to bring them up in light and truth so they may one day 
through the atonement and resurrection of Jesus Christ, return to the presence of our Heavenly Father. These precious souls come to us in purity and innocence. As parents, we assume an immense responsibility for their care and well-being. Parents share this sacred trust with brothers and sisters, grandparents, teachers, neighbors, and all who touch the lives and impress or influence the souls of these precious children. King Benjamin admonished parents many years ago, But ye will teach them to walk in the ways of truth and soberness. Ye will teach them to love one another and to serve one another. The critical nature of the first tender formative years cannot be overstated. These little ones are like seedlings in a plant nursery. All look much the same in the beginning, but each one will grow to become independent and unique. Parents are to nourish, tend, and teach their children so they will grow to their full stature and potential. Parents and teachers should see beyond the little girl in pigtails and the ragged little boy with a dirty face and holes in the knees of his pants. True teachers and leaders see children as they may become. They see the valiant missionary who will one day share his testimony with the world and later become a righteous father who honors his priesthood. The inspired teacher sees pure and beautiful mothers and future presidents of Relief Society, young women, and primary, even though today they may be girls who giggle and chatter on the back row in the classroom. Sometimes people say, well, Boys will be boys. Not so, but boys will be men, and almost before we know it. To see our children grow, succeed, and take their places in society and in the Lord's kingdom is an eternal reward worth any inconvenience or sacrifice. Oh, that every parent can understand that children come from a pre-mortal experience and have possibilities that are often are far beyond what we might expect. We should spare no effort to help our children reach their full potential. Is it any wonder that Jesus brought the little children unto Himself to teach and bless them? He said, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in My name receiveth Me. He also said, Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. When asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The Savior called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them and said, Verily I say unto you, Except ye be converted and become as little children, Ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. A recent experience illustrates the importance of each of these little children. One Saturday morning I was preparing for an activity with one of my grandsons. 
But before we could make our exit out the door, I heard another small voice inquiring, Grandpa, can I go too? Did you ever try to say no to such a request? That activity would not have been the same without someone else who really wanted to go too. Just as surely heaven will not be heaven if some of our children who want to go too are left behind. Some may choose not to go. Our Heavenly Father has given everyone the agency to choose for themselves. We have the task of helping them learn about our Heavenly Father's plan for us, demonstrating our faith in the Lord and continuing to work with our children in prayerful and patient persuasion to teach our children the gospel of Jesus Christ, to protect them from the influences of a wicked world, love must abide in our homes. We should cherish and care for our children with unwavering dedication. The older we grow, the more precious our family becomes to us. We come to see more clearly that all of the wealth, honor, and positions of the world pale in significance when compared to the precious souls of our loved ones. You young parents who are beginning your families must guard against seeking financial gain, worldly comforts, or achievements at the expense of your children. You must guard against being so anxious to get to work or to a meeting that you do not have time for your family especially time to listen to little anxious little voices. Always remember this timeless counsel from President David O. McKay. No other success can compensate for failure in the home. We cannot and we must not allow the school, community, television, or, church or, or even church organizations to establish our children's values. The Lord has placed this duty with mothers and fathers. It is one from which we cannot escape and one that cannot be delegated. Others may help, but parents remain accountable. Therefore, we must guard the sanctity of our homes, because that is where children develop their values, attitudes, and habits for everyday living. Children perceive their own identity much earlier than we may realize. They want to be recognized as individuals. Not long ago, as my wife visited with our daughter, her three-year-old son ran to his grandmother. She picked him up and said, Hi, how are you doing, babes? He looked at her and said with a serious voice, I not a babes, I a dude. In the vernacular of the day, he was asserting that he was someone special. He had a place, and he belonged. What a beautiful place this world will be when every father and mother see the importance of teaching their children the principles that will help them be happy and successful. Parents teach best when they lead by good example. 
govern their little ones with patience, kindness, and love unfeigned, and have the same spirit of love for children that Jesus exemplified. In times of need, a father may bless his children through the righteous exercise of his priesthood. Every mother can accept her children from her Father in heaven as her great source of joy. She will know that because her children are also children of God, no sacrifice is too great to protect them from evil and to surround them with the spirit of love and trust in God. One of our grandsons, when he was five years old, became confused when his family moved into a new ward. He thought the meetings were over and went outside. When he realized that he was alone and could not find the family nor their car, he knelt down and prayed for help. Just a few minutes later, one of the counselors in the primary presidency came out and asked if he was lost. A primary teacher had called to her from the door of the classroom and said that someone was missing. The teacher asked the counselor to find out who it was. The counselor felt impressed to look outside and went straight to our grandson. Later, the teacher and the counselor both commented on how strong their impressions were that he needed help. We were thankful that his parents and primary teachers had taught him that Heavenly Father loves him and taught him to always pray for help. Priesthood leaders should select dedicated, spiritually guided primary teachers. Teachers should teach by love and example after prayerful preparation. A loving teacher each Sunday can calm the fear of new surroundings and help children want to come to church meetings. One five-year-old girl began to cry as the family was preparing for Sunday meetings. When asked why she sobbed, I don't know who my teacher will be. Her class had had several teachers in recent months. The frequent change had disturbed the peace of that tender little soul. Our children do not grow to full physical stature suddenly. In like manner, their spiritual growth takes place over time. This development might be compared to erecting a block building. The walls are formed block by block with strong mortar holding each block to the others. We could give these building blocks names such as bedtime stories, listening to a child pray, tucking a child in bed at night, and a quiet review of the day's activities. Other blocks could be pleasant dinner conversations, praise for tasks well done, birthday parties and family outings. Others could be doing your chores, being kind to one another, reading from the scriptures together, serving others and saying, I love you. Still other blocks could be learning to work, taking responsibility, respecting elders, singing together, doing homework, attending primary and honoring the Sabbath day. Even larger blocks are family home evening, respecting and honoring the priesthood and family prayer. 
a vast array of such beautiful building blocks that are placed carefully can form a fortress of faith that the tidal waves of worldly distractions and evil cannot breach. These blocks are held together with a mortar called love, love of Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, love of parents, love for each other, love for choosing the good. Many children have only one parent at home, and some are left with no parents at all. We all share a responsibility to help fill such voids and to provide sustained assistance and encouragement. On the negative side, we hear disturbing reports of parents or guardians who are so far removed from the Spirit of Christ that they abuse children. Whether this abuse is physical, verbal, or the less evident but equally severe emotional emotional abuse, it is an abomination and a serious offense to God. Jesus left no question about the seriousness of harming children in any way when He said, But whosoever, whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believeth in Me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depths of the sea. We plead with you to take time for your children and your grandchildren while they are young. Special moments may come only once. Before we are aware, they have grown older and our best opportunity for teaching them how to live happily and fulfilling lives is past. I know that we are all spirit children of a loving Heavenly Father, brothers and sisters, every one of us with a glorious destiny if we will humble ourselves as little children and keep the commandments of God. May we be blessed with the Spirit of Christ in our own lives, and may we have His Spirit with us in teaching little children, is my humble prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.